Welcome to Visibility Radio. I'm Kenneth Poir, and this program is entitled Just Why It Matters. We'll be talking to people who are subject experts as well as people who live with a vision impairment and other forms of disabilities. My guests and I will cover a range of topics including arts, sports, communications, and a whole lot more. Anything that will make a difference to live a full life. So join us on Just Why It Matters. Welcome to Just Why It Matters and I'm Kenneth Poir and we're sitting right here in the studios of Visibility in Perth, Western Australia. With me is Laura Hawkins and she is the team leader for children's services right here at Visibility. But she's also a trained psychologist. Laura, welcome to Just Why It Matters. Thanks, Kenneth. Now, we're going to be talking today about educational services, pedagogy, methodology, and everything that concerns learning for children with vision impairment. Maybe you can start us off by talking about some of the essential basics of what it means to teach a child with a vision impairment. Sure. So when we think about childhood development and how babies learn from even infancy, how much they rely on vision to explore their world, to understand people around them, to encourage them to move in their space, to reach, to look at faces, you can understand how significant the impact will be on young children if they don't have that motivation to move, to speak, to engage in their environment. And that comes down to, you know, not having enough vision to explore safely and feel safe in their environment. So I suppose it comes down to looking at how do we motivate these young children to engage in their environment and expose themselves to things in their environment in another way that makes them feel safe enough to kind of reach out in their environment. And I suppose from a very young age, we use sound. And for children who may have some vision, we use light and texture contrast um, to encourage them to start. Before you go on to some of the strategies, Mm. you also mentioned social, emotional development Mm. as well as language. And when you talk about movement, I would gather it's physical movement. How does something like physical movement and the ability to learn languages help a child Helps it, how does it help a child develop you know, his or her social emotional mm. confidence? Mm. Well, sure. I mean, we would like to, well, you know, we expect children to have fairly typical development. So learning language, um, recognising facial expressions. I mean, we often say to, to mums initially, you know, if you have a nice big, bright red lipstick or blue eyeshadow, just pop that on when you're talking to baby. You know, it gives the the baby some point of reference to draw their face to, to look towards, which is a very socially normal thing to do when you're looking at someone or talking to someone to look them in the eye, look them in the face. So that's one of the, you know, a really clear marker of trying to help these young children with low vision to display, you know, social norms that we would generally expect. In terms of movement, look, a a child with low vision is 
they don't, like I've said before, they don't have that intrinsic motivation to reach out and explore their environment. So uh, to try and get them to develop more strength, more stability and reach those typical milestones as their same age peers. So then we can expect young children to go into their, you know, typical environments. Right. So I would gather that movement is part and parcel of a child learning the his physical environment mm. and if the confidence to move is somewhat hampered, mm. so too the learning abilities for the child. Yeah, I would say you're probably right. on the money there. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, let's talk about curriculum, access mm. to curriculum. Okay. So, look, in terms of classroom adjustments and modifications, it really depends on the child's vision impairment and the level of vision that they may have. But I guess typically, you know, we would see um, contrast used a lot in classrooms, enlarging the texts. Uh, the child may, may sit, you know, at mat time right next to the book that the teacher is sort of reading from. They may introduce a a toy or a, some sort of um, a tactile item that may represent something from the book. So say, you know, the three little bears, they may pass the child a bear that sort of they can then have that relationship with. It, it comes down to glare, um, lighting, assistive technology that they may be able to use in the classroom. You know, and in, in saying that, it, it may come down to even rest periods and, and break times, exam conditions maybe being a little bit more flexible or more time allowed for children with vision impairment because using their vision can be more laborious, it can create more fatigue or headaches. So I guess being receptive to listening to what the student needs. Right. Now, that's all good if the child is at a certain level of maturity Mm. where he or she can communicate with you Mm. and say, you know, I'm reaching the end of my span of attention. Mm. Um, But what about younger children? How about the question of literacy and numeracy and, Mm. you know, the, the whole question of getting them up to speed with the rest of their cohort or their Mm. age group? Mm. Uh, Look, numeracy, I guess they use a lot of manipulatives, a lot of tactile materials to help, I guess, solidify what the concepts are. So that's that's a really great example of how children can learn sort of their numeracy skills. When it comes down to literacy, it, it can be a bit trickier. You know, from my experience speaking with some parents, some children find it really difficult even if they're their texts are so enlarged, to be able to, I guess, sound it out phonetically and then bring the word back together if they're only getting a letter or two on a page at a time. It can be very difficult for the child to sustain that mental load of then putting the word back together. And then, even if they do put the word back together, keeping the comprehension of the text that they are reading. So that is one aspect I find parents find very difficult when they know that their child is and can be a capable reader, but there's just some challenges in how they can um, engage with a text. And indeed, 
with some families, they do speak about that mental load, that cognitive load throughout the day, plus the visual fatigue um, and concentration that, you know, little Johnny might hold it all together at school until 3.15, but then gets in the car or gets home and just is crumbles and... A complete meltdown. Yeah, a complete meltdown or in tears or, you know, falling asleep on the couch at 4.30 because they are just so exhausted from Mm. the amount of visual work they've had to do in a day. And if you kind of think back to your days at school, so much of what you do at school is vision-based. So when we talk about literacy, I'm just thinking aloud here, books, they always entail some measure of visual cues, whether it's Mm. a picture, and you're trying to help a child who does not have the benefit of sight decipher meaning and context, you know, signifiers and what it uh, means, juxtaposition of images. How do we overcome and help them overcome those barriers? Mm, Again, that's a a tricky one. I mean, and it varies from, you know, are we talking about children in sort of very early years education where we might, you know, have more of a tactile book, a sensory type story, you know, it may be that there's items on the page that they can remove and take off. I'm just having a nursery rhyme come to mind at the moment, but, you know, in Wincy Spider in playgroup, we may have a little spider on a, on a string and going up and down a straw, which signifies, you know, the pipe. But they the books vary. You know, we have some books that we have braille over, you know, embossed over the words or using a hot glue gun to go around the images in a, in a picture book so at least the child can sort of feel some tactile sense of what's happening in that picture, even though I can't engage entirely visually. And again, that can be extended into sort of your human bio books in high school where, where they may then um, sort of braille them, uh, braille the picture so that the student can then engage. And I know certainly in um, geography type maps, they're quite elaborate, but they can can create these braille maps that um, students can um, engage with in a tactile sense. Right. Now, it's sometimes said that a, a child or even a person, you know, an adult mm. who has a vision impairment tries to compensate by developing a keener sense of uh, sounds, auditory Mm. processing. Is that something that can be enveloped and integrated into pedagogy where Mm. a teacher can begin to explore how his or her voice and the other sounds can accentuate certain things so that it compensates for the lack of being able to see it? Mm, Look, I think that's a very valuable point that you raise and it does become, uh, I guess, the student's main way of engaging in the classroom. You know, exploring whether an audiobook might be a better way for a student to engage with a text in high school, say, rather than maybe having a... Uh, a digital version that they are then putting on, say, their iPad Pro or their laptop and students all around the class can read exactly what, you know, I guess some students have commented in the past that they find it a little bit embarrassing that, you know, 
they, every other student has a textbook on their desk and they have this laptop with, you know, huge letters that the whole class can sort of see behind them. Some young people have said, have commented that um, sometimes those technologies and, and you know, all those th- things that we feel can be helpful, they feel as a hindrance socially, you know, makes them look a little bit different. Stick out like a yeah. sore thumb, as yeah. they would say, and they don't necessarily want to become the conspicuous mm. difference in the classroom. Correct, correct. And then if you kind of consider um, education assistance in the mix as well, so certainly having someone there to support students in the classroom is it's highly commended, but some uh, young people do comment that it, it impacts on their peer relationships because no one wants to go out to lunch with the kid who has the adult with them. You know, they can't then talk about whatever they might like to talk about in right. the absence of teachers and adults. So, it's, you know, in saying that, that there are great strategies that we can use in the classroom and we just need to be mindful of how that impacts on the, the peer relationships as well. Mm. Now, let's move on to tertiary level Mm. education and perhaps focus on the arts, uh, literary arts. Do you think the difficulties of being uh, vision impaired limits one's ability to perhaps pursue literary arts in creative writing and that sort of in that sort of field? Look, I mean, that would certainly have its challenges, but I feel like if someone has this innate drive to study something very passionately, they will do it. Um, I I feel like there, there may be modifications that would have to be made in terms of perhaps, you know, rather than handwriting, using um, laptop or computer during exams, perhaps, is comes to mind. Perhaps they would need to explore audio books and making the text available in that way. Uh, but yeah, that's I think that's very possible. Right, right. Um, so your experience, because you've been involved in this, what are some mm-hmm. of the experiences you've had in? identifying some of the challenges and then developing the strategy and monitoring to see if the strategy is actually working. Yeah, look, it's a tricky one because, uh, you know, the OTs are typically on the ground working in classrooms, working closely with, you know, wonderfully inspired teachers who are helping these students, um, you know, access the curriculum. One that comes to mind is sort of, you know, the introduction of technology that probably teachers weren't exposed to in their training, you know, teachers getting really on board with, you know, the the magnifiers and ah yes, you know, assistive technology. Their assistive technology, you know, they wouldn't have had exposure to that in their right. in their typical training in university. So, um, just the welcoming from teachers in supporting students with vision impairment. I mean, it is such a low incidence disability that some teachers, you know, it may be their first student they've ever had with a vision impairment. And indeed, you know, the levels of vision impairment can be rather varied. So, you know, if you had a child with one type of vision impairment and and then, you know, a few years later you have a child with another, you know, completely different vision impairment, their needs 
may be completely different as well. So, right. you know, so where you may see a child with, uh, you know, 618 vision, 624 vision, they may fatigue or, you know, need more rest breaks to someone who has much lower vision, you know, your 660s, they may need, you know, screen magnification and, you know, more time in exams. Um, they might need handwriting assessments to give them more time or to allow them to use a keyboard during exam, uh, exams yeah, as well. Right. So I probably couldn't f- find a, a complete case study that would cover it for you, but certainly um, in my experience, yeah, the, the educators that we're seeing are, are very inclusive and right. in supporting children with vision impairment. Now, the conversation won't be complete until we bring up the subject of family mm. and carers or even parents, particularly for the young children. I've noticed that strategies that incorporates parents into mm. the mix seem to work very well because whilst the child may be in a school or with a therapist mm. or a specialist for you know x number of hours per week mm. it's the family that's with them 24 by 7 mm. so do you think that bringing the parents into the mix and making them part of the support system to help the children in their educational pursuits um, does it help yeah, look, I mean, best practice is to have partnerships with families. Like you say, that their parents are the first educators for their child. And certainly in our experience, you know, we have very dedicated parents who are well engaged with their child um, and who are passionate about their child receiving the support and assistance that they need when they go into school. So generally speaking, most of the children we see will have funding allocated for an education assistant. And I think that gives parents a lot of peace of mind when they first sort of send little Johnny off to kindergarten or pre-primary. You know, kindergarten isn't a um, sort of mandatory year in WA. So it's pre-primary that they must attend from five years. It gives parents a lot of peace of mind to know that there will be someone there who can support their child. And that's sort of, they won't be there full time, mind you, but it will be at least someone there. And it, it often is in those early years, those peer relationships as well. Sometimes our children with vision impairment struggle to sort of see those facial cues. Um, So having someone else in the room to help explain, you know, oh, little Johnny so-and-so has a sad face. They don't like when you do that. Or, oh, look, they're so happy to see you today. How about we go and have a play with, you know, Susie today? Or even you know, it comes down to how would my child find their friends in the playground because all of the kids look exactly the same in their uniforms, um, you know, and they have they might be a slower eater or they may struggle to open their lunchbox and the EA can be there to support them. So knowing that there is another person that can sort of help assist in that environment to help build peer relationships as well as foster some social awareness and social cues and and reading other people, which can be difficult for children with vision impairment. Right. Now, you raise a very important point about peer-to-peer and, you know, the social Mm -hmm. aspect. My question is, with the 
growing popularity of homeschooling. Mm. Do you think that is an option for children with vision impairment? And what are the ups and downs of a parent considering homeschooling? Yeah, look, it is definitely a growing movement, and with that growing movement is a is a growing community. So I think. Uh, a lot of people used to think, you know, it was very isolating, um, you know, minimising those opportunities for social interaction. But now there are, you go on Facebook or Google communities or, you know. Tons of resources. So many. Yeah. It's, um, you know, look, if, it's, if a parent is wanting to explore that option, certainly I could have a conversation with them or they're welcome to um, sort of just go on the internet um, and access a huge amount of information about home education. Whether it suits their child, I, I mean, I couldn't comment. Um the parent obviously would need to explore the access they may have to, you know, enlarging texts and, you know, and be confident that they can provide um, what the student needs um, in terms of their vision. Because mm. when you talk about sort of the Department of Education schools and Catholic education schools, I mean, they have great big bodies behind them. So, and in saying that as well, uh, if, if, if a parent does choose to home educate, there is still a, a link to the Department of Education. So there is still a consultant that sort of is allocated to you and can support a parent in developing their home curriculum. Very good. Very mm. good. Now, Laura, for anyone out there who is struggling or contemplating any of the options available mm for their child or their teenage child, mm. where would they contact you? Yeah, look, um, they can certainly contact me here at Visibility. I'm, yeah, more than happy to speak to families about their their educational experience or the education options that they may be considering if they've not yet ventured into, maybe their child's not reached sort of four or five years, you know, and, and I guess rest assured that uh, all schools must meet the needs of a child with a disability. Um, so the, there is universal access to the curriculum for all students, you know, so every parent should be rest assured that their child will will still have a wonderful experience with their education. Fantastic. Laura, thank you very much for sitting down with us and giving us the broad view of what people can do uh, and what's available out there for the educational needs for their children who may be vision impaired. Thank you, Kenneth. Thanks for having me. And we've been speaking with Laura Hawkins, who is a psychologist and a team leader for the children's services right here at Visibility. Until I speak with you again, this is Kenneth Barr signing out. 